When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hey guys, and welcome to Mysteries and Histories with me, your host, Georgia Marie. This podcast audio is adapted from my YouTube channel. I wanted to make my content more accessible for those of you on the go, and we all love a podcast. So if I ever reference anything on screen or a photograph, please bear in mind that this audio was originally made for video. It won't hinder your listening experience at all, but just to save any confusion. And if you do want to go and subscribe to my channel, I'm just Georgia Marie over on YouTube. And with that, let's get into it. Hey guys and welcome back or if you're new here, hi, welcome, my name's Georgia and on my platforms here on the internet I focus on unsolved true crime, trying to spread awareness in the hope that maybe one day some of these cases might be able to get solved. Today we're going to be covering a case which might be difficult to stomach for some of you, it's an unsolved serial killer case in which the victims were children between the ages of 10 and 12. These crimes took place in Oakland County in Michigan in the mid-1970s and it triggered the largest murder investigation in US history at that time. This case was huge, but you'd never hear about it nowadays. Despite this huge investigation and multiple suspects over the years, as well as a variety of evidence that we will look into in this episode, nobody has ever been brought to justice for these crimes. Now I know these crimes happened almost 50 years ago now, but that doesn't mean the chances of justice are gone, there is still a chance. The the families of the victims still want answers, they still need that closure, and someone out there knows something that could provide that. This is the story of the victims of the Oakland County Child Killer, also known by the rather horrific moniker of the Babysitter Killer. I want to warn you going in here that we're going to be covering some pretty heavy crimes involving children in this episode, so please proceed with caution. These crimes began on February 15th, 1976 with 12-year-old Mark Stebbins. Mark was a 7th grade student at Lincoln Junior High and his mother Ruth said that he was a very lovable child. He had big plans of becoming a Marine when he grew up. Some articles described him as a loner, which I think is a very strange way to describe a 12-year-old, when really it just seems like Mark was a good student, he was quiet. As we all know, I do always aim to include personal details about victims in these cases. I think it's always so important to humanise them as much as possible, because in the world of true crime, people often forget that these are real people. But sometimes, especially in older cases such as this one, finding details like that can be hard. But I do always want to hammer that point home. These people existed. They were real. On February 15th, Mark had been at the American Legion Hall in his hometown of Ferndale, sort of an inner ring suburb of the city of Detroit. His mum Ruth worked as a bartender at the Legion, so he spent a lot of time there. Around 12.30pm, Mark told his mum that he was actually going to walk home, it was quite a short distance away, because there was a movie he wanted to watch on TV. Mark was a massive war buff, this was a war movie, he would have been really excited to get home and watch it, and the three quarter mile walk home was one that he'd done many times before. But Mark never arrived home. His brother Mike arrived home later that afternoon and found that he wasn't there, which he thought was odd. Things only got more concerning when Ruth called home to check that Mark had arrived and Mike had to tell her that no, he hadn't. 
At 11pm that night, his mother Ruth called the Ferndale Police Department to report her son as missing. And despite Mark being only 12 years old, Ruth was told by the police that she had to wait for 24 hours before he could be officially reported as missing. No search would happen until that point. By the way, this is a myth. If you believe that somebody is missing, you can report them as missing whenever you want. You do not have to wait. Ruth would later tell the police that she stayed up all that first night waiting for Mark to come home, saying she kept hearing noises and thinking it was him, but it never was. For the next few days, she would set three places at the table in the hope that he would come home. Again, he didn't. Mark wouldn't be found until four days later, until the 19th of February, and sadly, he was not found alive. At around 11.40am, a businessman called Mark Botekheimer was heading into the drugstore of a strip mall, walking through the car park of the Fairfax Plaza office building at Tennant Greenfield in Southfield. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw something that he originally thought was a mannequin dressed in a blue jacket and jeans. Only, as we know, it's never a mannequin. As he approached, he realised this was a child's body and he immediately called the police to report what he'd found. Another witness would later come forward saying that he'd passed this spot at 9.30am that same morning and the body was categorically not there. This witness was walking his dog on a 20-foot leash and had the body been there, his dog would have undoubtedly found it. So this means that at some time between 9.30am and 11.40am, this body was dumped and it was very quickly discovered to be that of Mark Stubbins. The authorities quickly released information saying that there were no immediate suspects in this murder, but they were exploring all avenues. The autopsy would soon reveal that Mark's cause of death was asphyxia, likely by smothering, but there was no way of knowing what with. Rope burns were noted on his neck, wrists and ankles, and he had been sexually assaulted before his death. The Oakland County Prosecutor at the time, Elbrooks Patterson, would say that in an oversight, Mark's body had been washed by the autopsy team, meaning that any fingerprints had been washed away. The news of Mark's disappearance and subsequent murder sent ripples through the local community. Parents immediately tightened their grips on their kids. But then nothing else happened. This case seemed to be a one-off and over the coming months, that grip loosened again. Surely it wouldn't happen to their kids. But then on December 22nd, 12-year-old Jill Robinson also disappeared. Growing up, Jill had lived with her two younger sisters and her parents in Detroit, but they had decided to move the family to the outskirts of Royal Oaks in search of a safer life. Jill's parents, Carol and Thomas, had recently divorced, so at the time of her disappearance, Jill was living with her mum in Royal Oak. Her father was living in Birmingham, about five miles away. And Royal Oak is only a few miles north of Ferndale, where Mark had been taken all those months before. Now, Jill was a preteen girl. At 12 years old, she was sort of just discovering her independence, and part of that included butting heads with her mum, testing her boundaries. Jill's been described as a very bright girl, a fantastic student, but she had what you might call a changeable pre-teenage nature. And like Mark, Jill was also described as a bit of a loner. On the 22nd of December, she was doing just that when Carol asked her to help make biscuits for dinner and Jill refused. They had an argument and reports say that Carol told Jill to leave until she wanted to become a part of the family, a sentence I'm sure Carol would regret for the rest of her life. A preteen girl arguing with her mother was a completely normal thing to happen. Both parties end up saying things that they don't really mean. 
Jill was said to be a very stubborn girl and after the argument she packed herself a backpack, got on her bike and left the house, presumably to cycle to her dad's house and stay there which again was about 5 miles away. Her sister asked her where she was going and Jill replied none of your business before just heading out without another word. She left the house wearing blue jeans, a shirt, an orange winter coat and a blue knit cap with a yellow design on it. In her denim bag she packed some clothes and a plaid blanket. This all happened only three days before Christmas and Jill had been looking forward to Christmas Day for quite some time. There's no way that she wouldn't have chosen to come home and celebrate. She was just a teenager, preteen girl, having a bit of a hissy fit. She didn't mean to disappear forever. Reports say that a witness, a family friend, saw Jill shortly after this point, about four and a half blocks from her home. She was seen at a hobby shop on Woodward Avenue. More witnesses would later say they saw her in the donut depot on Maple Road between 6am and 7am the very next morning. When Jill never arrived at her father's house, I assume him having been warned to expect her by Carol, he called the police around 11.30pm on that very same night, the 22nd. But on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas, officers arrived at Carol's front door to tell her that Jill's body had been found. She'd been discovered that day on the side of the I-75, north of Big Beaver Road. It was just four miles, a ten minute drive, from where she was last seen. But her murder seemed so different from that of Mark's ten months earlier. Jill had been shot at close range in the head with a shotgun, and there were no signs of sexual abuse on her body. Now, of course, that's not to say outright that no sexual abuse had taken place, but nine times out of ten, there's going to be signs, especially if there was a struggle. Jill was found laying on her back and she was fully clothed, she wasn't bound in any way. The scene was very strange, she'd been shot in the spot in which she was found, blood was in a ring around her head, but it seemed as if she'd sort of been cared for and fed for at least three days before she was found. Her body was washed and clean. What would be the motive here? Who cares for a child for three days, seemingly not abuse her, and then just take her to the side of the interstate to shoot her in the head and leave her for dead? Reports say that she was even found with the bag that she had packed right next to her. Although the MO, the scene of the crime, was so different, already in the days before her discovery, the media had made the connection between Jill and Mark's disappearances. It looks like they already penned the nickname the Oakland County Child Killer in this time. But this doesn't look like something confirmed by the police at this point. The police didn't say there was any connection. But it would be just a week until he struck again. People didn't have to wonder for long if these cases were linked or not, because with the third disappearance, there seemed to be a pattern. Ten-year-old Christine Marie Mihalek disappeared on the 2nd of January 1977 from Berkeley, which is just northwest of Royal Oak, where Jill had gone missing just a couple of weeks earlier. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. She was a fifth grade student at local Pattongill Elementary School, and she lived with her mother and siblings. Interestingly, like both Mark and Jill's parents, her parents were also divorced. Also like Mark and Jill, it's said that Christine only had a few friends. As far as I could find, the word loner wasn't used directly to describe Christine, but she was described as shy and quiet and an average student. Was the killer purposefully targeting certain kinds of children? Lonely kids who would just go along with what they were told? Quiet kids who wouldn't cause a fuss? Well, we don't know because the killer hasn't been caught, but it certainly seems to be a type here, a pattern. But that wasn't all of who Christine was. She was in Girl Scouts, which she loved. She was learning to play the violin after her mother gave her one for her last birthday. She loved to play on her bike with her sister and two younger brothers. Christine would be missing for the longest time out of all the children, 19 days from the day she disappeared to the day she was found. Her mother, Deborah Ashcroft, would heartbreakingly say that the reason Christine was kept alive for so long is because her captain must have enjoyed her company so much. She said she was the sweetest kid. Christine was last seen on January 2nd, approximately 3pm, after she asked her mum, Deborah, if she could walk to the local 7-Eleven to buy a magazine she wanted. Deborah said yes, so that's what she did. A clerk at the store confirmed that Christine did indeed make it there, she bought the magazine. The police report from the time also states that she was then seen at Hatfield's bowling alley, which is two blocks from the 7-Eleven, but it doesn't expand on why she may have been there, just that she's never been seen since. I don't know if Christine was seen inside the bowling alley, outside it, I don't have that information for you. With what had been happening in the county recently, when Christine was reported as missing, luckily this one was taken seriously straight away. Deborah would say in an interview three days later, people keep talking about the Royal Oak girl, Jill Robinson, but I'm not even going to think about that. An extensive investigation was conducted by police over the coming weeks, but they were unable to turn up any substantial leads. There was nothing. And then, at midday on the 21st of January 1977, a mailman in local Franklin Township came across the body of a young girl on Bruce Lane, which is a very short, dead-end street. She was partially buried in a snowbank, her body completely frozen in the deep winter weather. The body was very quickly confirmed to be that of Christine's, with it found that she'd only died about 24 hours beforehand. But the medical examiner would have to wait until the next day to conduct the autopsy because the body was so frozen. But they would eventually report that her cause of death was asphyxiation along with exposure. And very similar to Jill's case, there was no evidence of violence on the body, no evidence of sexual abuse. Again, Christine had been fed and cared for in the weeks she was missing. Following Christine's disappearance, it was suggested that a task force be sent up in Oakland County. Lieutenant Jerry Simmons of the Southfield Police Department set up a meeting with all police departments involved in the previous murders to sort of discuss this possibility of a task force. But this actually wouldn't be put into action until after the fourth case, for whatever reason. But by then, it was too late. Four children had died and the killer seemed to stop or at least move on. 
But in regards to Christine's case, fairly recently in just 2012, Deborah would file a $100 million lawsuit against the prosecutors and police involved in this case, claiming that it had been mishandled since the very beginning. Christine's sister Erica has said that her family believe there is a mountain of evidence the police will never divulge to them, but the case was ultimately dismissed in 2013. As part of the 2012 lawsuit, the family asked for the current Oakland County prosecutor, Jessica Cooper, to step aside and let the Department of Justice investigate these cases, saying that the system failed all of them. Family attorney Paul Hughes said that he had a confidential informant who met with the police but wasn't taken seriously and they were asking for the case to be taken away from Oakland County and Michigan State Police because of what they felt was either gross mismanagement or a cover-up in this case. I really wish I could share the details of this with you but they don't seem to be publicly available. All I can tell you is this lawsuit is based on information from this unknown confidential source who the family have nicknamed Bob and Bob claims to have details of the crimes. Bob alleges that the victims' bodies were all discovered on dates connected to pagan holidays and the killings were tied to satanic cult activity in Metro Detroit. Now, it is believed that this same man, Bob, had previously tried to contact media outlets with this information, but he wasn't taken seriously, so went directly to the families. Attorney Paul Hughes said to WXYZ.com, if he was some crazy dude, he'd just be posting about it all over, or he would be turning the matter over to the local county prosecutor. He wanted one piece of information, essentially to confirm what he basically already knew, before he was going to put an individual out there as a suspect. And that, my friends, is integrity on his part. That's all he wanted to verify before he put that information forward. And this seems to be the basis of this lawsuit. Bob also claims to have more information tying in more victims to the crimes. Hugh said that he would turn this evidence in to the Department of Justice if they answered his calls to investigate. Now, as you can imagine, this is all incredibly controversial because again, according to WXYZ.com, reporting by Heather Catalo, it seems that Hughes also announced a website for donations for his efforts here. On Hughes' website, it was said that a $1,500 donation could get you a copy of the report that will be allegedly submitted to the Department of Justice once the report was finished. Basically, it was a case of, if you donate me big amounts of money, I'll solve this crime. It was hugely ethically questionable. But the families, or at least Christine's family, did seem to trust him. They trusted him to put this lawsuit forward. The Oakland County prosecutor at the time of the killings was Brooks Patterson, and he said that this has pissed him off. He said, we were doing everything we could as these crimes became more expansive and went from two to three to four. To suggest that somebody in that system would have had any reason to protect the killer and cover up legitimate evidence, that's an outrage. At the time of this lawsuit, around 2012, Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard also said that he was going to do everything he could to help the family solve the murder, saying he feels nothing but huge sympathy. But it does look like there's a disconnect here somewhere because Bill King, the father of the fourth victim, Tim King, who I will talk about in just a moment, has said that there has been very little help coming his way from the county prosecutor's office. He said to CBS News in 2012 that he was very happy with the assistance from Wayne County where Tim's body was found, but he doesn't understand the total lack of communication from the Oakland County people, the people who have primary responsibility for this case. 
In the end though, as I said, this lawsuit was dismissed. But let's get back to our chronological timeline. So after the discovery of Christine, a 27 year old man called Gregory Green was arrested on child sexual assault charges. And he led investigators to a 26 year old man called Christopher Bush, who he claimed murdered Mark Stebbins. Now both of these men would end up passing polygraph examinations, but from then on, Bush would become one of the more prominent suspects in this case. To this very day, many of the victim's family members still believe that Bush was responsible, even though the police did eventually dismiss him as a suspect. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Gregory Green was convicted and sentenced to a life in prison for sexual abuse charges against young boys, whilst Bush was just given probation for sexually assaulting a young boy named James Vincent Gunnels. Remember that name because it will be coming back around later. Two months after Green's arrest, on March 16th, 1977, Tim King would go missing in Birmingham. According to his father Barry, Tim was a high achiever and participator in life. He was in the school play, a keen basketball player, he was willing to try his hand at anything. He was 11 years old at the time of his disappearance and he left his home to head to the local Hunter Maple Pharmacy just to buy some candy, a trip he made very often. He asked his sister to borrow 30 cents and then he headed off for the three block journey. On foot, this would have been a fairly quick journey, but Tim took his skateboard with him, and so this should have been a very, very quick round trip. This was the evening with the clerk at the pharmacy saying that Tim came along at around 8.30pm, and he left the store through the back door into the very dark parking lot. There is no doubt that Tim intended to come home that evening. He asked his sister to leave the door ajar for him because she was heading out and he didn't have a key. But when his parents arrived home from a meal out at around 9pm, the door was still ajar and Tim was nowhere to be found. After an extensive search of the area, they reported Tim missing the next morning at 6.15am. I suppose the King family did have a bit of hope in Tim's case, hope which maybe the other families didn't have at this point. Because at this time, they knew that the killer was keeping the children alive for a period of time before they killed them. They knew that in the early days of this investigation looking for Tim, the likelihood was that Tim was still alive. They just needed to find the killer, maybe reach out to them. The Kings actually went public with their search, appealing on TV for their son's safety and release. Barry King, Tim's dad, asked the person who had Tim to treat Tim as if they would treat their own child and to talk to him. Tim was a very talkative kid if you spent time with him, he said. 
Tim was abducted on the Wednesday night, and by the Thursday morning, there were 100 law enforcement scouring the area. The task force was finally called upon and put into action. By the afternoon, a task force headquarters was established in the local Adams Firehouse, just blocks away from the King's home. There were door-to-door searches, classmates were questioned, every area was searched, but again, nothing. Just over a week later, on March 23rd, Tim's body was found in a ditch along Jill Road by a motorist, just a very short distance from a very busy intersection. Tim was found in the same clothes he'd gone missing in and his skateboard was found just 15 feet from his body. The autopsy revealed that his cause of death was suffocation and unlike the previous two victims, there was evidence of sexual assault. Like the previous two though, he had also been cleaned and groomed extensively and he'd eaten his favourite meal, KFC, shortly before his death. I do wonder if there's something in the two male children being sexually assaulted and the female children having not been. Barry King would spend the rest of his life searching for his son's killer. He was convinced until the day he died that Christopher Bush was the one responsible, but it doesn't seem like any solid evidence ever came to light. Bush actually died by suicide very shortly after Tim died. Is it a coincidence that the murders just stopped after that point? But there has actually been lots of speculation over the years that Bush's suicide was staged and was in fact a homicide because it was a very suspicious scene. He died via gunshot but no gunpowder was found on his hands and blood-stained ropes were found in his home that later went missing. Take from that what you will. When Bush was eventually discarded as a suspect by the police, Barry would launch three appeals, the last of which was in December 2016, but the court continually denied them, saying that they were not persuaded that the questions presented should be reviewed by this court. Barry sadly died in 2020 with no answers as to what happened to his son. In the years after Tim's death, the task force would bring in 11,000 tips from members of the public, but only one really stuck out to investigators. A woman said that she'd seen Tim talking to a man in the pharmacy car park, about two car lengths away from where she was sat. She was able to describe the man who she saw talking to a boy that she believed to be Tim King, and she was also able to describe the car that he was driving, a dark blue AMC Gremlin with a white stripe on its side that she called a hockey stick stripe. It sort of followed the curve of the back window. Police said that the man in question was between 25 and 35 years old. He was white with a dark brown haircut in a shag style. He had mutton chop sideburns, a fair complexion and a husky build. Google didn't shed any light for me on what exactly a husky build is, so if anybody has any answers, put them in the comments. Now whilst a man with a shag haircut and mutton chop sideburns might stick out like a sore thumb today in 2023, you've got to remember that this happened in the 1970s. This was very much the style then, somebody looking like that wouldn't necessarily be memorable in 1977. Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin said at this time, We suspect we're dealing with a sophisticated, intelligent, educated man, the type of person a child would trust instinctively. At the time, police said that they suspected Tim was abducted by one or possibly two men, and those people could be involved in up to six other cases of murdered children in this area. 
Although the four I'm talking about today are considered to be the main four, in this case the connected four, there are a couple of outline cases that might also be linked, although things do differ very slightly. 16-year-old Cynthia Ray Kajur disappeared from Roseville, Michigan on January 15th, 1976. Roseville is another northern suburb of Detroit, about 11 miles east of where most of the other victims disappeared from. The four I've mentioned today all disappeared in very close proximity, just miles from each other. Cynthia disappeared after attending Roseville High School for the day. A friend offered her a lift home, but she turned it down. She had plans to go to a friend's house. Her parents were under the impression that she was staying there for the night, but her friends didn't seem to think so. She definitely had plans to go home. We know she made it to the friend's house and left around 8pm to go back home, but she never arrived. Her body was actually found later that same night, in the early hours of January 16th. Her skull had been crushed by a blunt instrument and she had been sexually assaulted, possibly by multiple people. Obviously, with this case being so close in both time and proximity to the others, tentative links have been made over the years, but the MO here just seems overall very different. Another one is Sheila Stock. She was 14 years old and she was murdered in Birmingham on January 19th, 1976. Her case is very different from the rest. She was at her brother's house babysitting her nephew when a burglar went in and out of the houses on the street, just stealing what they could, and eventually they turned up at Sheila's brother's house. He rang the doorbell, but when there was no answer, he jimmied the lock and entered. A neighbour said he was on his roof watching as this burglar encountered Sheila in the house with his gun drawn. When the burglar couldn't find anything of value in the house, he raped and murdered Sheila. The neighbour saw all of this happen, but it happened all very quickly, and in a time before mobile phones, he couldn't really do much. He watched things unfold very quickly before he could call the police. The perpetrator here was described as a thin white man between 18 and 25, about six foot tall. He had a prominent nose and a prominent chin and he was driving a 1967 Cadillac. After the crime caused a scene in the street, the killer just mingled and chatted with the onlookers trying to subtly fit into the crowd before he made his escape. He wasn't scared about being seen. Again, this is a very tentative link to the Oakland County child killer, but this was a child killer in this area at the same time the serial killer was active. The final name that I could find linked to this case was that of 14-year-old Jane Louise Allen from Royal Oak. She disappeared in mid-1976, but she was considered to be a runaway, something she had done about five times before, and she was last seen hitchhiking along the I-75 in Pontiac on the 7th of August. Five days later, her body was found in Miamisburg, Ohio, having died from carbon monoxide poisoning after being kept in the trunk of a car. Again, a very tentative link, but another child murder in this area in this time period, so it's worth mentioning. So before we go in looking at suspects here, let's talk about some sort of big links in these four cases. All the related killings, so the main four I've spoken about today, happened on days that it was snowing. All children were last seen within a mile of Woodward Avenue between 19 miles and 15 mile roads. All the children were fed and cared for before they were killed and they were all bathed, either voluntarily or not. Both male victims had rope burns on their wrists and ankles whilst the females didn't. In March 1977, the Oakland County Task Force would release a comprehensive suspect profile. They said he was a white male, 20 to 30 years old, above average education and above average intelligence. 
He had the ability and the capacity to hold and hide a child for at least 18 days, and he was likely compulsively, fanatically clean, with a very clean car and a clean house, which was likely a single dwelling with an attached garage. He was, is likely homosexual, no substance abuse, and he maybe saw a psychiatrist with mental health problems. In terms of work, he may have had time off in December, January 76 to 77. He probably worked a white collar job with a nine to five schedule in an area of Southern Oakland County. Importantly, he wanted the bodies found and he related to young people well. He probably had a way with children, a way to convince them to get into his car. Today, the task force here have put eight different projects into operation in an attempt to find this killer. And they started with Operation Observation in March 1977 to encourage specific groups to pay attention to the profile of this alleged offender. And these specific groups included people in close contact with the public in the area. So you're talking postal service employees, meter readers, utility repairman, etc. Each of these groups was asked to distribute flyers with composite drawings of the suspect and to pay very close attention when they were in people's houses. For the next year and a half, the task force worked very hard, but by December 1978, it was just shut down. This was the biggest investigation in US history at this time, but it didn't lead to anything despite many suspects being identified. So let's have a look at the suspects in this case. We've already very briefly looked at Christopher Bush, accused by Gregory Green of being responsible for the murder of Mark Stebbins. Now, Bush did manage to pass a polygraph test, although we know they don't really mean all that much. But when he died in his house, they found a drawing of a tortured boy who very much resembled Mark Stebbins. They also found ropes in his closet, and he had a blue Vega car that was very similar to the car described by the witness in Tim King's abduction. However, investigators insist still to this day that there isn't a single piece of evidence pointing to Bush's involvement, something which was kind of confirmed in 2012 when part of the 6,000 pages of evidence in this case were made public under the Freedom of Information Act. But whilst they've said there is no evidence against Bush, they do have evidence against somebody who is very closely linked with him, another suspect who is still alive. Local 4 said back in 2012 this suspect would be arrested very soon if they got a DNA match, but 11 years on, no arrest has happened. So what DNA and forensic evidence did they have? Well, it was reported back in 2011 that matching hairs were found on the clothing of all four victims, hairs from a white dog. And this was kind of the confirmation that all four of these cases were definitely linked. It was also reported at this time that lead investigators believed that more than one person had to be involved. These kids were being kept alive for several days, something they believed that more than one person must have had a hand in. But this isn't all they had, they also had human hairs. A DNA match from these hairs led investigators to a suspect who had never been named before, James Vincent Gunnels. Yes, the person who was assaulted by Christopher Bush as a boy. Now, I believe these human hairs were found on Christine's body, but through the dog hairs, all four of the bodies have been able to be linked, suggesting that whoever was responsible for Christine's murder is probably responsible for all four. The hairs found on Christine were a mitochondrial match to Gunnels, who was 16 at the time of the murders and would be in his 60s now. 
Now this was the first physical evidence match in the history of this investigation. This was huge. But importantly, a mitochondrial match is not a complete match. It means that the hair belongs either to Gunnels or to a male relative on his mother's side. It's not 100% his. Now Gunnels would go on to live a life of crime. At the time this information came out, he was actually already in police custody for another crime. And it seems that he's been in and out of prison for the majority of his adult life. Unsurprisingly, because he was a victim of childhood abuse, I'll imagine there's a lot of trauma there and that causes people to do bad things. Or I should say it can sometimes cause people to do bad things. But the link here is very tenuous. So Gunnels' hair was found on a victim, but he was only 16 at this time. He was questioned by police and he says he doesn't know how his hair got on Christine's body. He didn't know her but he did spend a lot of time around Christopher Bush, who was the main suspect, as we said, for many, many years. Police have said they do not believe that Gunnels was the killer, but they do believe that he may have worked with him. It's long been considered that Gunnels may have been used as a law to get kids closer to the car and to their killer. Kids are much more likely to trust another kid than to trust an adult. So although they do have a partial DNA match, police are still very reluctant to arrest Gunnels. Even with the hair, there's just not enough there. There's a reasonable other way that his hair got on the victim, and it's not a given that it definitely belongs to him. It's just a mitochondrial match. I assume investigators have looked at all male relatives on his mother's side, but I can't say that for sure. Gunnels has sat through two polygraph tests, of which he failed the first and cheated on the second, so take from that what you will. Gunnell said in 2012, I'm not guilty, but at the same time, I know how the state police twist words to their advantage. My heart goes out to those families. It really, really, really does. I don't feel that they were served justice through any of this. The same year, Gunnell spoke with the King family face to face. They asked him questions and they said afterwards it was mentally and physically exhausting. But overall, they thought the story he shared was believable. Nothing much really came from that meeting, but Gunnels did say that Bush would have had knowledge of these crimes. For now, it doesn't seem, at least publicly, that loads more is being done in regards to this angle. There is the DNA match with Gunnels, his hair was found on a victim, it's not enough. Other people of interest in this case include a man called Archibald Edward Sloan, who drove a 1966 Pontiac Bonville. A hair found in his car matched evidence at two of the crime scenes, Mark's and Tim's. But importantly, the hair found in the car does not belong to Sloan himself. Police believe it must be an acquaintance's and prosecutors have considered the idea that Sloan could have been an accomplice. At the time of the murders, it's believed that Sloan worked at a gas station near Woodward Avenue and several years after the murders, he was arrested and charged with two counts of first degree criminal sexual conduct for which he is currently serving a life sentence. So this is not a good guy, this is a guy who is known to sexually abuse people in this area. There is a tenuous link again, I feel like I've used the word tenuous so many times in this video. Once again, it's not enough for an arrest. The names Theodore Lamborghini and Richard Lawson are also two names that you might see come up a lot when researching this crime. They were part of a 1970s sex ring that preyed on young boys in Detroit. Five men were believed to be involved originally, but by the time charges were brought in 2006, Lamborghini and Lawson were the only two still alive. 
Lamborghini faced 19 counts of sexually assaulting children, whilst Lawson faced 28. These were not good men, these were paedophiles. In 2006, Lawson told WDIV that he knows who the child killer was, but investigators have said that they don't believe it to be either of these two men. However, they may hold information that will probably help solve the case. You're probably thinking like, wow, that's a lot of paedophiles in this area at this time. And well, yeah, it was. This was a real sort of thing in Detroit in the 1970s. This was a real problem. But also it's important to remember that there are bad people all around us all the time. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to know about it, but we do. We do need to know about it. There are paedophiles, abusers everywhere all the time. A lot of them just haven't been caught. In 1977, police began to investigate a child pornography ring on North Forks Island in Lake Michigan, which led them to the names Frank Sheldon and Jerry Richards. According to the police investigation, Sheldon owned a lot of the island, whilst Richards, who was a teacher, would recruit young boys and fly them over to be abused and filmed. Sorry, I know this is a really rough one, but it's important to this case. Both of these men have since died. Sheldon fled the country in 1976 and Richards was eventually prosecuted for his crimes. But once again, investigators do not believe that these men are the killers. But the prevailing theory here is that the killer could have been somebody that was previously victimised on North Fox Island. In 1978, Detroit psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Danto received a letter from a person claiming to be the roommate and slave of the Oakland County child killer. The writer identified himself as Alan and the roommate as Frank, but those are thought to be fake names. He stated that he went with the killer when he went looking for boys, but he was not there when he kidnapped the victims. The letter was full of spelling and punctuation errors and the writer seemed desperate, saying, I am desperate and nearly gone crazy and haven't got no place left to turn. Please don't give up the killer to the police. You must help me as there is no one else I can turn to. This is for real, I know who the killer is, I live with him, I am his slave. Alan claimed in the letter that he stayed with the children at an apartment in Detroit whilst Frank went to work, and the children were gagged so no one in surrounding apartments could hear them. Apparently the pair met in Vietnam and Frank had been traumatised in the war leading to this behaviour, saying that he killed a lot of kids whilst he was there and then got medals, got rewarded for it. The letter reads, he wants the rich people, like people in Birmingham, to suffer like all of us suffered to get nothing back for what we did for our country. He's not a monster like you think. He really loves children, especially that little girl for three weeks not doing it because hates children, but because hates everybody else out there. Again, it's not entirely flowing. Alan then asked Dr. Danto to communicate with him through the newspapers using the code words, trees to bloom in three weeks. And then on April 10th, Danto received a call from Alan in which they agreed to meet the next night at a bar. Alan said he'd bring him Polaroid photos proving that Frank was responsible if Danto brought him a letter of immunity from the governor. But then Alan never showed. Dando said that he 100% believed that this was real. Alan sounded really frightened. He wasn't cool and composed at all. This was a scared, terrified man, and he wasn't surprised when he didn't turn up. Could Alan's story potentially link back to North Fox Island? Is his mention of a Frank purely coincidental? Frank Sheldon had fled the country two years previously, so Alan couldn't have been living with Frank Sheldon at this time, but could this name have just been used as a placeholder, the name Frank very synonymous with this kind of behaviour? 
Was Alan a victim of the island? Is that what he meant by slave? Former Wayne County detective Corey Williams said that they put quite a bit of time and effort into this angle, trying to ascertain if these kids were filmed, were pictures taken, was there any link between the child victims and the ring? But it doesn't seem like they're ever able to find any answer. Although the original task force ended in 1978, it seems that it was revived around 2012 as they reviewed the DNA evidence with modern technology. But there's been nothing more happened since then though. The DNA evidence they did find didn't lead to an arrest even though they did get a match. But it did uncover one thing. The killer had a white dog. The surviving families are still trying to fight for answers in this case. I can't imagine how frustrating it is for them, especially as they feel like evidence is being kept from them. So many times they've come this close to answers, but there are so many good suspects in this case. It's like trying to catch smoke. It just slips through their fingers. But there's always hope. There's always a chance of a case being solved. Even though these murders happened almost 50 years ago, these kids still have people who love them, people still fighting for answers. And one of the most important things in old cases such as this is just keeping them in the spotlight. Perhaps someone knows something but has always been too scared to come forward. But maybe the person they're scared of has since passed. Maybe somebody is just now brave enough. Maybe there was a creepy guy down the street who had a white dog who always gave you weird vibes. You never know what will be the tip that will finally provide answers. Anything is useful. Anyone with any information in this case should contact investigators at 833 784 9425. I'll leave the information in the description box. From reading between the lines in this case, and I may be completely wrong, I suspect they think this was part of a larger group. This probably wasn't just one person doing this. This was probably part of a ring of some sort. But again, I may be wrong. But clearly there was something dark going on in Detroit at this time. Again, as I said, you never know what will be the tip that leads to answers in this case. So if you have anything at all, if you lived in Detroit in the 1970s, rack your brain. Do you know anything? Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you for choosing to spend this time with me and with the victims today. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye, guys.